Welcome back. We'll begin session three. <clears throat> Welcome back for session three. This session is titled Homosexual Marriage and the Church. Homosexual Marriage and the Church. I should say that based on the timeline, we may go 10 over. So heads up, if you need to scoot out, no problem. Also, my wife said that I was talking a little fast during the Q&A time. So when we preach sermons around here, you, know, you cook an hour of material through and sometimes you read it out loud. I didn't quite do that. So just kept working on the stuff. All right, homosexual marriage in the church. We're not talking about homosexual marriage. In the church, homosexual marriage is the catalyst for the whole discussion and the church's response. In the first session, we looked at the Bible. In the second session, we looked around the world at uh, where Jesus has us and what he sent us to do here. In the third session, we're looking at the church to consider who we are to be. And with each year, the polling reveals more and more openness to the normalization of homosexuality, particularly among millennials. It just appears there's a move here, folks. So we need to keep talking, keep articulating ourselves, keep asking the question, what is marriage, and helping clear up you know, c clear the fog out for folks and make good arguments and represent the gospel. But there is a, definitely a move here, especially among millennials, to embrace homosexual marriage. And that it looks as though it is increasingly embedded within our legal structures. It's the great symbol of homosexuality that it is not just accepted but celebrated in good. So we will live in a world that says it's not just, it's not bad, it's not just okay, it's a good thing. And to say that it's not a good thing makes you a bad person. And that's a different kind of place. So how do we respond? Well, we remember Jesus' words, first of all, in John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we're in the world, but we're not even just in it. We're sent into it. We're not of it, and we're not just in it. We're sent here. Now, are we really sent here? I mean, I was born here. His disciples were there. They're there in such a way as they are sent, as the Father sent Jesus with an agenda and a mission. So Jesus sends his disciples question is how can we be faithful? The winds are changing, the currents are changing, there's a riptide over here. How can we be faithful? The three words in the subtitle for the seminar, seeking clarity, conviction, and compassion, aren't just three nice C words. They make up a kind of a paradigm for thinking about our responsibility. We want compassion that's informed by convictions and clarity. We want convictions that are informed by clarity that spill over in compassion so what are we to do? That's a little big header for the first half of this talk. What are we to do? Our three responsibilities in love for God and neighbor. First one would be to love with clarity. Love with clarity. Show off the reality and the goodness and the beauty of God's glory and his creation, designs, and his gospel. Love with clarity and show off the reality, the beauty, and the goodness of God's glory and his creation designs and his gospel. It requires that we know what the Bible says. Remember the Bible storyline. Get a clear, get clear on God's purposes for gender, sexuality, and marriage. 
Don't just adopt the assumed definitions and purposes from the world around you. Get clear on the nature and pervasiveness and deceitfulness of sin. Feel as Paul did as the chief of sinners. Related to our topic, this means getting clear on the sinfulness of homosexuality, remembering that it is an illustration of the human problem that we all have. So we can say it's wrong and that I'm wrong and that God's grace is great. Get clear on the holiness of God and his justice to condemn us for all of our many sins. There is none of us, no sin, uh, and no guilt that we could ever handle. We're all just done. Uh, But for God's grace. Get clear on the glory of God's grace to cover our sins and deliver us from their enslaving power and unite us to Jesus Christ in whom we find our identity, no matter our desires. And get clear on God's timeline for transformation. The new creation is the time and place where all things will be new. And until then, we will struggle with sin with God's help and with the help of one another. That's called theology. If you miss the heaven part, you might expect God to fulfill his promises to do good by you here. He'll do good by you here. But he will do great by you in the new creation. That's where our hope is fixed. But the person who struggles with same-sex attraction and it hasn't disappeared, though they've prayed, the horizon is the new creation. For all of our sins, this is the case. Good theology is a guard against pride, condescension, um, loss, various... Uh, disappointments in life, although we have them. So know what the Bible says. Live what the Bible says. Be male men and female women. This is not just no big deal. We are not confused about who we are. We look at our parts and we know men protect and provide and produce. Stay busy with these things. Let's be good husbands and wives, complementary, permanent, one flesh, exclusive unions. Be excited about the exclusivity of your marriage. Be excited about the permanence of your marriage, that it will endure through hard times even. One person with you till you die. Let's own that. One flesh, comprehensive, complementary. She's not like me. This means taking our marriage as seriously as Jesus takes his marriage to his church. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. This means having sex, and this takes work. A little confession. Um, first couple years of marriage, uh, my pastor pulled me aside. And he, he would do this every now and then, just ask how things are going and ask uh, personal questions. It was, he, was, he, was, he was good of him. And he said, how's, um, how's the, the sexual relationship going? We'd had, a long, we'd had a long history. I was a high schooler in this church, and so he's my a discipler. And uh, so we talked. And, um, you know, new, new couple, new married couple, uh, earlier years aren't, it, it keeps getting better, right? So, um, you, know, you know what, I said, why is he asking me this? I could not figure out. And I asked him, I said, why, you know, why? Uh, and he says, well, um, my wife, you know, I've just been watching. Here, here's what he's saying. You can read it on the lady. If she's comfortable and free with you guys in public, affection, warmth. Um, this couple could pick up that our first two years of marriage 
were a little rocky. We were fine. But uh, he just had, had a, he had a pastoral sensitivity that looked below the surface. And my takeaway there was, yeah, there's something to that, isn't there? Right? Uh, guys, is your wife chilly around you? Are you just going through motions? You're just living together? Come on. Work on sex. We're the people that took, you know, that know where it came from. It takes work. This means not getting divorced. Don't mention it. Don't do it. Live toward your spouse in such a way as to make divorce unthinkable, both in terms of their des- uh, her desire to be divorced from you and her confidence that you would never do such a thing. Raise masculine sons and feminine daughters. And broaden your view of each of them. So, you know, some guys aren't rough and tumble. And that's okay. Don't make them think they aren't a guy. Does your son think, I'm not like my dad and my dad doesn't like me? Do you kind of put up with your kid? Uh, embrace your children. Uh, do things together, mom with daughter father with son you know the son's with mom all the time right dad's out working at least in my home I gotta go out of my way to make sure my son can identify with me in a way that he doesn't identify with mom and sisters he's special in the family in a way that the girls aren't and the girls are special in their way this is culturally specific figure it out on your own but raise masculine sons and feminine daughters treat every person you meet as an image bearer of God And we need to say what the Bible says. We need to know what the Bible says, live what the Bible says, and we need to say what the Bible says. Talking is an important part of being a Christian. We want to be easy to talk to because we're friendly, happy, confident, because we just like the people around us. Be able to talk freely and happily and confident about all the things we've talked about today, even, because you're thinking about these things, not with the same clarity. I just prepared these lectures, but with the same interest and curiosity and seriousness. Ponder and study how you might get from this subject with a person to the gospel. The loneliness, shame, and unmet expectations bridges might be helpful. Common to people who have struggled with same-sex attraction. Speak clearly in a way that addresses the need of the person in the moment. Don't love a hobby horse on this subject. Love people on this subject. There are a few things, there are, there are few things, by the way, that can ever be said better than Kevin DeYoung, if Kevin DeYoung has decided to say them. Listen to these wise words from him about how we should talk. Of the many complexities involving the church and homosexuality, one of the most difficult is how the former should speak of the latter. Even for those Christians who agree that homosexuality is contrary to the will of God, there is little agreement on how we ought to speak about homosexuality being contrary to the will of God. Much of this disagreement is owing to the fact that there are many different constituencies we have in mind when broaching the subject. I totally resonate with this. There are various groups that may be listening when we speak about homosexuality and the group we think we are addressing usually dictates how we speak. If we're speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. If we're speaking to strugglers who fight uh, against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we're speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be apologetic and humble. If we're speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're speaking to liberal Christians who have uh, deviated from the truth once delivered to the saints, we want to be serious and hortatory. If we're speaking to gays and lesbians who live as the scriptures would not have them to live, we want to be winsome and straightforward. 
If we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear homosexuals, we want to be upset or disappointed. So how ought we to speak about homosexuality? Should we be defiant and defensive or gentle and entreating? Yes and yes. It depends on the one who's listening. All seven scenarios above are real and not uncommon. So love with clarity. Know the Bible, live it, and speak it. And love with conviction. Show off the faithfulness of God and your faithfulness to him even at significant cost. Love with conviction. Show off the faithfulness of God and your faithfulness to him even at significant cost. We should prepare for our discipleship to cost us something. If your discipleship hasn't cost you anything yet, it's going to cost you something. Prepare for it too. Not only has Jesus promised this, but the the winds uh, make me think that will be the case. This will actually bring us current with New Testament Christianity when it happens. I heard this week that we should not, uh, uh, what should not have surprised me, and that is that in certain school environments, the heat is on. Students in the schools are marginalized by their friends for being Christians. Being a Christian is the great, big, embarrassing thing to be. Uh, someone invited questions. Someone said, this is the scenario. And I thought, absolutely. So I became a Christian when I was uh, 15, 1994, five, in California, I remember deciding to becoming a, become a Christian and thinking, this puts me out. Like, I'm one, of, I'm one of those now. So people grew up in different settings. If you grew up in the, the, the South, Bible Belt, maybe Christian home. So in my experience, becoming a Christian meant crossing that line and being on the other side of my friends. Um, now, I love them. Bringing them to church, that's what we should do. Um, so it wasn't like I was then against them or something, but there was definitely a sense of movement. So I hope for you, and it, frankly, my faith doesn't cost me enough, but it should cost us something. And when it does, and we lay, lean into that cost, not excited about it or inviting it, but when we're willing to embrace it, that's a good sign for the church. It's a good sign for us. I spent two years in high school in California, other two years in Missouri. Um, both parts of the country, there was that sentiment. Uh, we started a Christian club that met after schools in a t- school in a teacher's classroom, and I still have the letters signed by two departments of about a dozen teachers insisting we stop meeting and talking about legal language and alluding to lawsuits and all this. Two years later, after I graduated, the club teamed up with some attorneys from the Beckett Fund. The school stood down. Uh, I remember meeting with the principal. This guy was a Christian. He was a deacon at this local Baptist church, and he said, I have a distinct memory. He goes, Trent, when I'm at work, I have to wear this hat. And then, when I'm outside of work, I take off this hat and I put on this hat. It was an important moment for me as a young Christian. The thing is, is that he was just being coerced by these teachers who are going to make a lot of noise and lawsuits are expensive, right? Lawsuits are a form of intimidation, even if you'd win and you're on the other side of a lot of money. So I'd print out, internet was new, I'd print out, I'll highlight up all these court cases. I don't even know if it was legit. I was like, see, I can do this. And he was intimidated. So we, we all worked on this. Two years later, my buddies, like I said, it was getting, it was getting big. And so lawyers were called in and, and uh, they're still meeting. Fish club, how about that? Uh, that was 1999. 1999, 15 years ago, folks. Teachers ganging up on a little group of students Principal, can you meet in the corner of the cafeteria an hour and a half after school's out? It's a little less messy. Okay? 
1999, we should figure that our young people are in a hard spot. So what do we tell them? We tell them it's the way of the cross. That's what we tell them. Share that you're a Christian. Speak of the grace of God for sinners. Speak about sin. But be prepared to bear the shame for doing so. It's a part of the deal. And it's what identification with the Lord entails and always has. We need to act 17 conversationalists. Paul was provoked in his spirit when he walked into Athens. Now what did he do? He got out the Bible and he started with Genesis. Right? And he worked his way to judgment through resurrection and the cross. The God of this world, the God who made the world and everything in it isn't served by human hands. They don't even know who this God is. He's got to start with the all-sufficient, self-existent uh, God that, that doesn't need any of us. It's preaching. Worldview conversationalists. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation conversationalists. You can't assume a certain view of God anymore or sin. The point, get ready for your youth to cost, for your faith to cost you something. Job, money, clients, business partnerships, friendships, peace in the family. Jesus promised it all. Don't be happy for it. Um, but know that when it comes, uh, your reward is in heaven. And you're blessed. Finally, love with compassion, showing off the grace of God toward those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Love with compassion, showing the grace of God toward those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And thinking specifically about those within the church and key word on struggle. Sam Williams from the uh, Southern e- Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, linked to a video of his this week, a phenomenal video gives us uh, four helpful suggestions for growing as a church in our care of those struggling with same-sex attraction. First, promote a culture of honesty with ourselves, others, and with God. That sounds obvious enough, right? We should not minimize the reality and sadness and difficulty of same-sex attraction. We've been guilty of this. The church of all places should be the place where we can share anything about us and find grace. Our Lord's death covers all of our sins. Listen to them, listen to their story, as part of my prep for the seminar, I had three phone calls. Uh, one meeting, two phone calls. Um, and just to buddies and said, hey, uh, just back up and tell me the story. I'm going to take some notes. Mostly what I'm after is perspective. I want to be informed by the narrative of your human life and this struggle. I found it. I want to do this with everyone now. <laughs> uh, tell me about your whole life. Uh, I, I found that my tone, my thinking, my spirit was all just shaped by these hour-long chats about struggles and family and what I was thinking in those years and shame and I wanted to hide and I wanted to kill myself. And it's just, it's, it's just dynamic, folks. I was helped. So listen, listen. I haven't listened very well. I was blessed you this week. Any sin we hide over the long run will turn into something very dark and the shame compounds. And I think the fear of sharing this particular sin has ruined many souls. So where we've made it feel impossible for people to confess this, we need to repent. When they do come out, it's with a kind of transformation, rejection, new identity. So coming out of the closet, someone announces it and then they embed themselves within a new community that will accept them with those desires that they haven't been able to get rid of for maybe years if they've hated themselves for them. So part, part of what I think has happened with the gay movement, it's force, it's uh, identity, uh, it's uh, weight, uh, is it was uh, all these folks cooked uh, 
over years uh, struggling with these things and uh, finally found each other to, to say, you're okay, I like you. Well, Christians, Christians can and should do that, but in the right way through the cross and because of the cross and because we're sinners, right? So I think, at least for me, I haven't been aware of this issue. I haven't been thinking about it. I have never struggled with this. But some of you have. I mean, I would bet. And, and um, uh, that there are multiple people in the room who have at different times in their life struggle with this or have an enduring situation where they're attracted to people of the same sex. And we should pray for you and you should feel free to, to confess your sins to the right people at the right time and be heard and loved and prayed for. There's a great danger in hiding our sin and I think that explains, the, the hiddenness of it explains some of the strangeness within gay culture and the force of, uh, force of, the, force of the movement. Also, being honest before others doesn't mean before everyone. We don't confess all of our sins to everyone. It's just fine to confess to a few people at the right time and to be accountable. So you think like, if you need to share this, it doesn't mean you're going public that you're this kind of a human being. It means you're sharing with a friend, as I would or anyone would, a sin struggle because you're a sinner, not fully redeemed yet. Take some of the sting out, right? That's normal Christianity. You're not a special, bracketed kind of human being. It needs help that no one can give. We're there for you and so is God. Second, we can cultivate a renewed respect for differences. We can cultivate a new, renewed respect for differences. From my conversation with the men uh, who counsel men with this struggle, so two of the guys I talked to have counseled literally and met with, talked with literally hundreds um, each of them said this of, of guys who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, that is, struggle with it and want help with same-sex attraction. I was surprised to learn that nearly all of the men who confess this have had generally sensitive version of manhood. So there's a great lecture I'll link to out. I didn't get to watch it, but it's been highly recommended to me by a few guys. The guy walks this through. He deals with um, guys who struggle with this. I'm saying guys a lot, but um, here, guys and girls. Specifically with respect to guys, though, um, about 95% are rough and tumble. They're rolling around the floor, hitting, boxing. 55% play piano or uh, become a nerd on the computer or uh, you know do paintings and stuff. Our masculinity vision can handle that. Uh, it should, because apparently God made some guys who like painting and poetry. David's writing songs, and so. Uh, the point is, we can cultivate a renewed respect for differences and flex a little bit, you know. So manhood isn't just hunting. Um, growing up, for, for me, uh, competitive sports, bad at them, didn't like them, didn't know what was going on, never scored a goal in soccer, scored one goal in soccer after like five years of soccer. Drumming, I could do by myself in my room and get good at after like 10 hours and then walk out and be able to do something. Uh, and that's competitive, but it wasn't, you know, so I wasn't a real tough guy. Um, that's okay. Yeah, I got picked last and made fun of too. Um, so, uh, in the Christian church, we can do a better job of affirming young guys who don't fit the mold. And that's one takeaway for me in, in getting to know these guys and hearing stories. Cultural stereotypes aren't always helpful. And neither are jokes. Uh, we should be careful uh, not to make fun. Uh, we... we uh, we don't want to do that for other sins, uh, like gluttony. I suppose we, we sins are funny because people are funny, right? We're funny. We're we're ridiculous, uh, and sin is ridiculous. And if homosexuality is particularly upside down, 
Um, there's, it, it is for that reason, uh, the butt of jokes. But we have to be careful and Christian about the way we talk. And so if it's possible that you make a joke and somebody has been struggling with this for years, um, it's now you've pushed them farther into the dark. I have never realized this. Um, laughing at something on TV, I don't know. I, you know uh, so we can think carefully, thoughtfully, and Christianly about the joking bit. And so this is a new, new category for me to think about how that would affect guys. This has just not been on my radar as a function of love. One guy I spoke with said that when confessing to a friend, like I'd mentioned, he thought he was going to get punched in the face. Another guy said he went to meet with his pastor, and he'd been at the church for a while, and he sat down, a gracious, loving guy, and he goes to share. He thinks the pastor, this is what he thinks is going to happen, is going to get up and send him out of the room and tell him he can't come back to the church. Gospel preaching church. See, this is the li- Satan's lies, right? The darkness, the hiddenness of sin, the shame has a way of just crushing the soul so that you think your pastor would send you out of your church. Ah, it's hard. So, um, so we need to be more sensitive. Third, we can express a type of empathy for persons with same-sex attraction that comprehends how level the playing field is under the cross. So none of us are alone in our struggle to obey the Lord and resist temptation. Our struggles are all different. We shouldn't speak in, um, one guy said to me, he goes, one thing we could do better at at the church, and he said it real nicely, he goes, usually with this particular sin, it's usually us them. So almost always, people don't know they're doing it. He was real nice about it. He goes, people don't know they're doing it, but they always will speak of homosexuals or homosexuality as out there in them. But it, when with other sins, we're, we're just a little more aware that it's around us. So just be aware that it's around us. That can shape how we talk. So I hope in this, even my talks here, I've been careful to, um, address those who might have it, same-sex attraction, and, and uh, you wouldn't feel like you're, uh, you're not here. Um, fourth, provide biblical hope for change. So to quote Sam now, who uh, gave us these four points, which are good points, the gospel changes the most important things initially, and it changes everything eventually. Proper help and proper expectations are really, really important. So one guy I talked to said, you know, he'd prayed for years for it to just go away, and it wouldn't go away. Why isn't going away? Well, um, there are all kinds of things we pray for and disappointments we have, and as we get to know the Bible better, we understand how these things work, but just with this particular sin, this is, he's struggling. Why won't it go away? For him, it was hugely encouraging and a help to his sanctification to realize that God will take it away in the new creation. So that to struggle with it throughout the rest of his life. If he knows he's got to do that, and it's not a sign that God has left him, or he's not with him, or he doesn't know God, uh, really, really helpful. So that's theology, right? So we, all, we will struggle with sin. And it may be, in, in many cases, uh, from my reading, uh, same-sex attraction can, can go away. About, about 30% of folks will say it's almost just totally gone. Uh, many, many folks will say it stays with me my whole life. And the guys I talked to and from the reading I've done, we talked about being born with it and, um, you know, they have a memory of it showing up. They didn't ask for it. It doesn't make them not culpable. We've said we didn't ask for a lot of our sins. We're born in Adam, right? But just to help us all be sensitive to these dynamics, give biblical hope for change, set proper expectations, 
Point out evidence of God's grace. Thank God out loud for them and to them. Encourage them how God uses our weaknesses to show himself strong. Encourage them with a vision of heaven. One guy told me um, it's been a help to him to embrace the struggle to know that God's using it to keep him humble to make him like Christ to remind him he's a sinner. You have a sin that's like this. I have sins that are like this. God, I wish they'd go away. But there they are, right? You fight, you pray, you read scripture, you ask for help. In biblical community, um, knowing people and being loved and loving in the local church. Those are four good points, I thought. So now a few questions. So where does same-sex attraction come from and should we call people gay? So let's define some terms. I've been using different terms throughout the talks. You probably picked up on them. I'll define a few. Uh, a guy named Mark Yarhouse gives us these terms and these descriptions. They're used in the culture as well, but I think these are helpful categories. Same-sex attraction is descriptive. Same-sex attraction is a description of the reality that a person, a female or male, is attracted to the same sex in a romantic or in a deeply emotional way, in a way that isn't proper. Same-sex attraction. Same-sex orientation or, uh, orientation refers to an enduring thing that's persistent and isn't going away and hasn't gone away. And it may, but it's, it's the orientation. I don't love orientation language because at least when I hear it used out and about, to me, I hear something that's fixed. So my preference is to talk about same-sex attraction just to use that language. And then to talk about gay and homosexuals. So if somebody calls themselves gay or I'm a homosexual, they're interpreting the data of the attraction. So the attraction is descriptive. If I say I'm gay, I'm identifying myself as a kind of person. I'm a gay person. That makes sense? I'm a homosexual. The Bible talks about homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality. But in Christian terms, um, there aren't kinds of people, right? There are kinds of sins, kinds of struggles. Better to talk about same-sex attraction and then uh, when somebody says, I'm gay, reserve that language for that. Now, I know a couple of Christian guys who speak about being gay Christians. It's not my recommendation to use that language. I think it traps your psyche into thinking you're stuck as that. Um, you're that kind of thing. You're made that way. It's not changing. Whereas I do think there's some transformation that can happen, and it's not a function of identity. So where does it come from? It's a part of the fall, and no one explanation makes sense of it. I talked with my friend Nate on the phone Thursday and he confessed the same-sex attraction to his, uh, he confessed it to his father before he confessed it to his mother. He said of the hundreds of guys he's talked to, he hasn't talked to one guy ever who's confessed it to his father first. Um, interesting. So there are several patterns that seem clear enough and I don't want anyone to feel uh, if you've got a dynamic here with a kid or something like condemned for this. Um, so every situation's a little different and, and all of our sins are ours. So if you have a son who's wandered into the dark, um, confess whatever you may have not done right, and trust it to the Lord, lean on his grace. But a few patterns seem clear enough. Nature, uh, everyone's different. Like I said, about 90, 95% guys rough and tumble, about 5% sensitive. Both of these guys I talked to that have talked to and counseled lots and lots of people have said, in almost every instant, they're this kind of guy. This as long as they can remember they liked the piano and art more than football and playing around outside gravitated to mom and not as much to dad, even if attractions came later. And it's not a sure sign that that would mean that this is coming. It's just that there's that pattern here. Which is to say, it's not a biological determination that he'll have same-sex attraction, but it's, 
it seems like a high degree of guys who do at least were of a certain wiring. Very few guys who were rough on the playground end up there, at least from what I'm picking up. And there's nurture. I thought of diving into this. Uh, I thought of diving into this that the often heard explanation of a broken father-son relationship might be debunked. So I've heard this a long time. So broken father-son relationship um, is it's always the case. Not so. It actually isn't debunked. Um, another brother I spoke with on the phone said hundreds of men he's talked to about same-sex attraction. And he said in every single instance there was a distant or dark relationship with dad. Evil, he mentioned in a few cases, evil eyes, anger, disgust, sometimes abuse. Not all boys who have a broken relationship with dad struggle with a same-sex attraction, but nearly all do. Um, so there's, there's other research and science on this, and I'm not all read up, so I hope, um, hope I'm responsible in saying these things. But these guys really are. And from the reading that I've done, I, I feel comfortable saying these things. So uh, if, if you're not the best dad, um, plenty of broken father-son relationships, uh, have a kid grow up and and like ladies, okay? But a high degree of guys who end up with these things miswired also felt shame and disliked and distant from father. So it may be that if your son confesses to you at some point, if something like this goes down, that there could be some introspection and confession and repentance there and just conversation about his life and how things have gone. There's a lot of history usually by the time somebody shares something like this. So something to keep on the radar. It's another reason to raise masculine sons, feminine daughters, and to, to really be on with your, your kids, dads. Don't be too busy for them. Um, should we call people gay? Like I said, I'd suggest the language of same-sex attraction is helpfully descriptive of reality. Attractions are attractions, but the language of I am a homosexual or I am gay generally represents the interpretation of those desires as indicating a certain identity and one that is a certain kind of fixed status. And for lesbian relationships, in terms of pattern, there's frequently abuse or hurt from men so that they retreat into another woman for closeness and in, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in love. Okay, so next question. Uh, how can I identify with a person who confesses same-sex attraction? It's a very good question. It's a question born of love. I'm glad you asked. One of the real tragedies is that those who find themselves, these desires often feel like they are the only one. One guy said, um, for like years, he thought it was just impossible that he was actually a Christian or that there was ever a Christian anywhere who had this and he went to church. Um, All the while, it's true that if you don't struggle with same-sex attraction, you probably can't identify with the specific difficulties tied to their specific sin. However, a friend reminded me on the phone, this is Nate, my buddy, who started this ministry. He's come up with these three things that I think are really, really sharp. We can identify with their loneliness, their shame, and their unmet expectations. You see that? So we all have different struggles, different sin struggles, but loneliness and shame and unmet expectations and disappointments, we can identify with. Uh, And their temptation, they felt alone, even alienated from family and friends, perhaps even as they shared life with them. Jokes, comments about homosexuals convinced them that they shared, surely they would be put out of these relationships. And tied to loneliness is a sense of shame, that my same-sex attraction is a sign that I am outside the reach of God's grace and unable to be helped. We all struggle with shame, and this is a point where we can identify as well. And lastly, unmet expectations whether it's brokenness in the home or romantic relationships and friendships or lost dreams, we all know what it's like to expect and to be discouraged. 
Maybe for you it's infertility and a struggle to trust the Lord or it's goodness in your life, another kind of unhidden struggle people have um, that has gone unseen, whatever it is for you. Another question, uh, can a person with same-sex attraction change? Can they change? It's another good question. We should be careful here. Christians have been guilty of not thinking carefully enough through this question. Some might say, uh, they should just change or they should just stop. It seems like if, um, uh, if pro-homosexual marriage folks are saying they're born this way and that's an error, our error would be they just can choose. I haven't heard a lot of folks talk, speak this way in a long time, but I think in years past this was more common. For many who struggle with this, they may have spent years praying for God to take it away with no relief. And there have been kinds of therapies that have promised too much as though this issue can be repaired like a broken bone or mending a tree. Dashed hopes are not uncommon. Studies show that many who desire total change only experience small gains over time and many continue for the rest of their lives with this attraction. They may also have reason based on what they have been told that they don't have enough faith. Think of all the... I don't know if there's kind of suffering you've had or experience in your life and really kind of cheap, superficial, and even just hurtful reactions that communicated to you that this person really wasn't on your wavelength. And so, you know, probably a lot of that. As Al Mohler, though, has said so well, we know better to say than to say that people cannot change. We also know better than to believe that people can change themselves. That add or change immediately. We'll serve our brothers and sisters with the struggle the best by thinking of this like we think of other ensnaring sins. So this isn't too hard, right? Okay, sinner in the world who reads your Bible and struggles with sin, you got the equipment you need to talk to someone who struggles with this. Genesis 4, 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. And that's our struggle. I've never struggled with an addiction to alcohol. Call it alcoholism or whatever, but I have known a couple guys who have and counseled one guy, two guys who have, and um, some of you guys have dealt with this personally, and ladies, and maybe you've dealt with family or friends and brothers and sisters in the church who have dealt with this, but the sucking, death-pulling, magnetic, uh, return to the grave, uh, irrationality, layers of shame, there are other parallel ensnarements in, in, in this life that we can translate to try to think about, get our, get our mind around how to address this. Sin of lust would be similar. By God's grace, these temptations can lose their power. And while none of us may be delivered completely from certain temptations, those temptations can be diminished in their intensity as our hearts, appetites are fed and satisfied in God. So in a way we've talked about homosexuality a lot is you're like cured of it or you become a heterosexual. You, were, you went from this to this. We don't talk that way about a lot of things, do we? Almost anything. Um, some of us, by God's grace, were able to cold turkey certain sins at, at different times, but, uh, and God just did it. Uh, but but the, the, the language of progress and time and the, the, the means of grace is, is a good way to go, I think. On that question, how can a person change? In short, the means of grace that God has prescribed for every Christian and for every sin. One, one brother I talked to said the most helpful thing for him, so it was the, uh, the heaven bit, like that's when God will fix this. Uh, so I can get to work. Um, and then uh, the second thing was uh, just good guy friends. So he'd come into church and just be distant. And then you've got the mystery element going on when you're looking around and people. And 
Um, he said, being close enough with lots of guys and not super close with any guys, maybe except real good friends, has been a fix. He just walks into church now, knows people all over the place. And uh, my reflection on that was, just as a, a, a guy who would struggle with um, you know, opposite sex attraction, um, uh, and not even, of course, struggling as much as it's in my marriage, but, but all of us men will, will have to fight this. Um, uh, humanizing the person. I had a friend, pastor friend, got on a plane. Beautiful model walks on and sits next to him, and he's reading a book about lust or something. Um, so... <laughs> So he says, uh, this is a great illustration. He said, uh, he introduced himself to her and she asked what he was reading. And this two-hour conversation with the gospel, he said, I'm a married man. Uh, I, I believe that God would have me to look at my wife and admire her and, and look forward to being with her and have all of my affections fixed on her and I'm reading this book to help me get better at that. And she'd never heard anything like this in her whole life. She shared about how men had treated her. At the end of that conversation, you can't lust, guys, right? There's a, there's a humanization that goes on. The person was despiritualized when they were just an image and now they're a soul. And you, you can't do it. Um, so same thing for guys of same-sex attraction or ladies with this. So enough relationship that's close enough that people are humanized and your attention and your heart is on the experience of that friendship um, and not so much distance that your imagination can go. So I thought that was helpful. He just said community groups, men's huddles, and he just added on like a number of things over the years that he's done at DSC that have helped, helped him. Uh, another question, I've been asked to participate in a same-sex wedding. What's my response? Two pages left, folks. Um, what's my response? What if you're asked to attend a same-sex wedding or photograph a wedding or set up chairs because you work for the hotel where it's happening? Seriously, a lot of questions, right? Are these all the same things? Compassion might tell us we need to say yes, we'd feel bad to say no, and we don't want people to think that we just don't like them or we're a grouch. Um, but if our conviction is that same-sex wedding is a form of, uh, is, is, is from top to bottom a recognition and celebration of the union, and this is not something we can celebrate, then going to the wedding is not something that we can do. Um, uh, and it's not like serving them at a restaurant. It's a unique event. So people ask that. They say, well, what about a restaurant? Uh, you know, you'll serve them. They also go, the wedding is a special event. Um, and, you know, Christians are thinking this through because we haven't crossed this bridge yet. Um, so I got a diagram for you. I'll put the diagram up. Boom, look at that. Woke up this morning and realized I forgot to draw my diagram on my computer. So I drew my little diagram and sent it to Chris. And we've got it in time for you. So sit on that for a second. Two convictions. One, a wedding is a unique event. It's a recognition and celebration from beginning to end. We are gathered here today to witness, right, that language. It is different than a same-sex couple eating dinner at a restaurant and asking you to join them or serve them. It's just different. Um, disapproving, this is the second conviction, is that disapproving of someone's decision or beliefs is not hate and it is not unloving. Sometimes the hard and awkward thing is the loving thing. Convictions inform compassion, clarify, clarity serves both defy the world's categories and just straight up say you think it's wrong uh, and love them still and take them out for a burger and do Acts 17 and start with creation. Um, so go out of your way to make this happen. Great book by, uh, forgot her name. She's an, she used to be a lesbian, wrote a book to tell her story. Um, and uh, what, 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 Butterfield, yeah, Rosalia, Rosaria, Rosaria, there you go. 
All right. Um, yeah, she says that it was the, the Christians going out of their way over years and getting to know her, loving her, listening to her, talking with her, and just being friendly, and talk, sharing the gospel, and doing that again and again and again. So not just hanging out. Sharing the gospel with her, talking about these things, and not stopping when she didn't come around. Eventually, she had to crack it open. God broke her. It's great stuff. All right, so here's the grid. I am not going to tell you what you can and can't do. If you come to my office or a pastor's office, we'll counsel you according to how we do it from God's word and we can go from there and you can do that. Um, with this specific issue, I've gotten a number of questions like this specific scenario, yes or no. Um, we don't do that for a lot of things in the Christian life, do we? So imagine you, um, you work for a company and your company has uh, company meetings quarterly in Las Vegas because hotels are cheap there. Okay, so the company flies you out. And everyone's going out on the strip that night. Do you go? No. People think you're a little cranky. Maybe, but you can't go. I mean, there's stuff that goes on out there at night. Maybe you go to the restaurant because you know that's safe, but you don't go with them to the next thing. And you find a nice way to do it, and no one's told you you can or you can't. You instinctively know by virtue of your exposure to the Bible and New Testament Christianity and the glory of God what is appropriate and not for you as a Christian. And you're, you're always doing this. You're weighing love and and be of, in the world and not of it and all things and don't conform. You're, you're, you're doing this and you don't. With this specific issue, we haven't asked the questions yet. So we're kind of like, tell me. Green light, red light. I have no idea. I'm going to give you a grid. So on the y-axis, if I got them wrong, you can just deal with me for a few minutes. So the y-axis up and down, private to public. Okay, the x-axis, passive to active. Or you might say indirect to direct. The farther you go out this way, the more public and the more active your participation in the ceremony. Next slide. So this would be, I would think, a very, I'm going to say a pretty impossible, an, an impossible scenario uh, for Ryan to officiate a same-sex wedding. And just to bracket it, you know, he's a civil servant and he, can, he has the legal ability to do this. Um, the wedding party, to stand in a wedding. I don't think you can say, I support you, and, uh, but I don't approve. And, and I'm going to use language like I, and I, I think I want to say right now, just to be safe, I'm saying Trent. So I'm talking as a Christian man working this stuff through, and I want you to own this and work it through yourself. All right, next one. So here's some other ones. Do you attend? Here's where I put that. It's pretty darn public, folks. You're showing up and you're sitting there. You're being seen by family. You're being seen by them up front. Do you not, like, say congratulations? Do you not get a gift? Do you give a gift but not a card? What do you put in the card? How do you, how do you not, how do you be a Christian there? How is it not too public? Um, so I think that's a bridge we're going to have to cross. It's not as active as officiating, but you're participating by virtue of the fact that you're there. That's part of what attendance at a wedding is. Photography, man, I think that's up there too. You're using your artistry and your ability to help portray and extend the reach of this moment. You're helping them tell their story. You're telling them to kiss. You're taking them on walks. You're having them hug. You're just, you're helping magnify the beauty of the day, but it's all a lie. Uh, cake and flowers. I don't think they're all the same thing. I think you're a little less public. 
um, a little less direct. You know, a photographer is going to have stuff on his site, you know, panning across two guys, two girls. Cake and flower person, maybe not. Maybe they're just generally open to weddings. But still, um, you know, you're participating with your art in the celebration of something. You really ought, without state coercion, have the freedom to say no. I think it'll come where uh, it'll be and be in business or not. Um, so be ready for this. Think about this. All right, the guy setting up chairs. I throw this out because I've gotten this a bit too. Someone says, well, what about this? Therefore, everything's okay. I don't think, you can t- I don't think that works. And this is why the yes and no red light, green light would just go on all day long. Um, so I want to give you a grid. You work for a hotel. The hotel hosts these things in a room. You're told to go set up chairs. It's pretty darn private. It's pretty darn passive. It's pretty darn indirect. Set up the chairs. Um, you work for a furniture rental company and you own it maybe and people are renting things all day long for all kinds of purposes. Rent the stuff out. This is Trent saying, rent the stuff out. If you bug your conscience, maybe you consider it. Um, it's not very public. No one in culture would say, you just approved or are you for? I mean, because they, you know, rent. People do all kinds of stuff. Uh, pe- people meet before they uh, shack up an affair at your restaurant uh, that you serve them at. You're not inspecting the occasion that people are going to your restaurant for. You're not inspecting the occasions that they're renting your furniture for. I'm using this as an illustration to show you that this is dynamic. Uh, There's a line here somewhere, I think, uh, and some things are real obvious and some things are not so obvious. If you, I mean, be ready if, you're, if your kid uh, shares same-sex attraction and says, I'm gay, so they've said, I'm gay, I embrace this, this is a good thing, they bring a guy home and they want to get married, do you pay? Do you walk him down the aisle? Do you go? Do you toast? Right? So I put that way up in the right. I, I, I think we're getting ready for some really awkward situations. How about put it that way? Really, really awkward situations. It's an opportunity to share the gospel. So don't just passively not participate in something. Actively not do it. Take him out for dinner. I was talking to one of you during the break. He says, yeah, now i got to take him out for dinner. That's the solution. Get over a burger, talk. I had a friend when I was in Louisville ask me if I'd marry him, and it was like, it, wasn't a, it shouldn't be happening. Um, uh, long story, lots of marriages. Um, but I took him out for dinner, and we had, uh, uh, I'm just using this illustration because it's in my life, not to commend me as this example, but um, it's, it's the way I knew how to do it. I loved my buddy. Uh, so, so if we problem solve, a hallway answer won't always do. If we think all we've got is hallway conversation or a quick phone call, we're going to be totally amiss to feel like we're loving them and saying no or saying something is sin. But if you say, you know what, there's some stuff I've got to tell you in terms of context and what I believe in, 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 in all this, and I would actually love to do that. Would you be willing to do dinner with us next week? Just come over, bring a salad, we'll just hang out a couple hours, and uh, you can listen to me yap, and we can talk. Uh, and have an understanding. I think that's the way to do it. So don't just passively not engage. Actively engage the people that you're now in awkward terms with. Because I think we're headed for some awkward situations. Uh, last question how can I avoid being called a bigot probably can't probably can't folks Jolie Osteen got skewered on Piers Morgan anyone see that video guy squirmed and wiggled he's all over the place you know I mean he's the lightest preacher we got in the universe and Piers Morgan wanted him to say he would stop at nothing short than a celebration and a lauding of homosexual marriage that's a trap against 
Just give it up. Just give it up. So you're going to be ridiculed rumors. Hey, Bible, Jesus, you know, read the Gospels. This is what it's all about. Your bigotry is actually love, and your foolish cross is actually wisdom. Remember, this is a crucified Savior we're following. Lean into it. Don't invite it. Don't, don't see it as a badge. Don't be proud of it. Be blessed by it. The sign that you're his, it's part of following Christ in this world, is being hated, as he said many times. I'll conclude by reading a, a nice excerpt from one of the best sermons I've ever heard on this from the mid-2000s by Albert Moeller at a conference called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ in Minneapolis with Desiring God. I'll link to it for you. He spoke about a limp. This is a ministry to those struggling with same-sex attraction an illustration for all of us. An analogy might be useful at this point. Consider a man who has sinned by driving under the influence of alcohol. One night, sinfully drunk and recklessly irresponsible, this man gets into his car and drives it right into a wall at high speed. His body is broken, but his life is saved, and he is taken to the hospital and receives emergency treatment. He recovers from the accident, but he will forever walk with a limp. Throughout his life, he will drag an injured leg, injured leg, which can heal to a point but will never be fully restored. Let us follow this man as he comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes a wonderful trophy of God's grace as a grace of God transforms him, as the grace of God transforms him, reordering his affections right down to the fact that he gains victory over alcoholism. Regeneration has produced a new man, even as sanctification is demonstrated in his growth and grace. Old things have passed away and behold, All things have become new, but he still walks the limp. The work of the Holy Spirit in his life is evident even as his limp continues as a part of his experience. He will limp all the way to the grave. He has become what only God could make him as a demonstration of God's glory in the salvation of a sinner. But until the day of his glorification, this man will limp. That limp does not become a disqualification for this man's ability to display the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he may begin to see his limp as a way of explaining to people, I want to tell you who I was in order to tell you who I now am by the grace of God. You see, this limp is part of my story. I do not exult in this limp, but this limp is an important part of telling my story about how I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and how he changed my life. In reality, every one of us uses limps. Throughout our lives until the day of our glorification, every one of us will limp. We must look to the moment of our glorification as the moment of our release from every limp. On that day, every tear will be wiped, every injury will be fully restored, everything will be made right, and everything will be made whole. Everything and every redeemed person will then perfectly display the glory of God. We are the people with a theology adequate to explain this, and thus we can offer the only genuine means of personal transformation. So if you struggle with same-sex attraction, um, I'm available for you to talk to, and I have some guys that uh, would be blessed to talk to you and advise you and counsel you, um, and I'd be happy to help in any way I can. And I'd trust that your brothers and sisters would as well. And so, brothers and sisters, let's end where we began, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious word. Left with only the creation, we'd, have to, we'd, we'd know enough to be without excuse and we'd be given over to our sin. So we thank you for your word that tells us about how bad we are and we embrace that word because the gospel of the power of salvation for all who believes and the righteous shall live by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.